Good morning. And since this is the first Sunday of 2018, Happy New Year. If you're here with us for the first time, I'd like to welcome you to Potomac Hills. Uh, my name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, please do stick around long enough to, uh, for one of the pastors to greet you, to meet you, to get to know you a little bit. I promise we do not bite. All right, so uh, let's turn our attention uh, to the Word of God. Our passage today is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 18. And as you're turning there in your Bibles or finding it on your phones, I want to remind you that uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians since about September or so. We took a break uh, from this series to spend some time in the Minor Prophets for the Christmas season, uh, but now we're back. And if you recall, we're dealing with a letter that is written to a church living in a similar context to our own. Corinth is a bustling economic hub uh, in ancient Greece, and it was a crossroads uh, for the world. And people from all over the world would uh, ply their trade in Corinth, and so it was a multicultural, multi-ethnic center of power, money, and culture, and it's not unlike the DMV. And so... Uh, DMV meaning not the Department of Motor Vehicles, but DMV meaning the district, Maryland, Virginia. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was unclear. So today's passage comes hot on the heels of a discussion that, about eating food sacrificed to idols. And for those of you that were here for the last sermon on 1 Corinthians, uh, you might remember uh, that the Corinthians had missed the point of their salvation in Christ, much like I had missed the point of playing ultimate Frisbee. Um, but it wasn't about, so it wasn't about freeing them up to do whatever they wanted, but to transform their loves. As Christians, they are to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbors as themselves. And sure, they had freedoms and rights that they were entitled to exercise, but the principle is that the love of Jesus and their brothers and sisters in Christ trumps all that. And so today, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. And in this passage, Paul demonstrates that chapter 8 is not only for the, Christian, uh, for the Corinthians, but also a principle that he himself lives by. And so today, we will get to see Paul putting his money where his mouth is. So please follow along carefully, paying attention, for this is the word of uh, the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brother, uh, brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of, it, some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our own sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much? If, uh, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do, we, uh, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and, and uh, those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing th- these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you this morning um, in need of hearing from you, in need of uh, your help to, to teach us uh, from this passage. Lord, we have many cares in this life, uh, many distractions uh, in this room, even now. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, take those away from us, that we might focus upon you, that we might hear from you, and that we might uh, be transformed by your word. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I was talking to a young couple once about buying a car. Uh, They were on a tight budget, and they were looking for a cheap car uh, that would see them through to better financial days. And the problem was that because of their budget, the cars that they were looking at uh, didn't quite give them the warm fuzzies in the reliability department. Uh, the principle of if it's selling for that cheap, there's probably something wrong with it, uh, was giving the heebie-jeebies of going in on the car. And that's probably wise. I mean, we often look at the price tag and, f- and infer something about the quality of whatever we're buying. For instance, a $1,000 car from Craigslist is probably not as reliable as a uh, $30,000 car from a dealership that's brand spanking new. Uh, and, but I mean, sure, you might get lucky with Craigslist and score an incredible deal on an awesome car that drives for another like 100,000 miles with no problems, uh, but the odds are much better that you're just going to get burned instead. And this principle uh, helps us understand the context of what Paul's responding to in this message. The Corinthians are questioning Paul's ministry and even his apostleship. In verse 3, we see that Paul has to give a defense of his apostleship. And so you might imagine the Corinthians applying this sort of economic rule of thumb to Paul's ministry in Corinth. Down in verses 12, 15, and 18, we see that Paul didn't take any kind of compensation from the Corinthian church for his pastoral work among them. And we could turn over to Acts 18 and see that Paul stayed with Aquila and his uh, wife Priscilla because they shared the same trade skills, namely making tents. And this is why we call uh, bivocational uh, pastors tent makers, by the way. And so Paul's ministry didn't cost the Corinthians a thing. 
And from the Corinthian point of view, Paul's free-of-charge ministry didn't quite meet their sort of expectations. Greeks in that day would have had a very low opinion of manual labor. Uh, the leaders of the community and the elite would have, uh, wouldn't have dreamed of doing a blue-collar job like tent-making. And so the logic goes, if Paul acts like a low-class person by working for a living, his teaching is probably low-class too. His credibility would take another hit simply because he refused to take this compensation, right? I mean, only a crazy person would turn down money. But it goes further than that. There was a certain way of doing business when it came to Paul's line of work. Itinerant teachers, orators, and public speakers depended on securing the support of patrons. These wealthy people would have had the resources to provide housing and a decent wage to these speakers. But, of course, we know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. There were expectations that came with being in the patron's employ. A shout-out here, a good word there for the patron's position or agenda. In short, these patrons were the money and the influence behind the speakers. They were the ones really in control of the speaker's message, and uh, obviously this arrangement is unacceptable to Paul. And so he refused to play the game. And so it's no wonder that the Corinthians had doubts about Paul. He's doing it all wrong. His ministry probably isn't worth what we paid him, which is nothing at all. I mean, what kind of apostle was Paul? Probably not a very good one. He doesn't even know how the game is played. So how smart could he possibly be? And it's to these thoughts that Paul writes this passage. And we get it in three parts. The first part is Paul's response, which is found in verses 1 through 3. The second part deals with Paul's rights in verses 4 to 14. And the third part is Paul's renunciation in verses 15 to 18. And for you kids that have no idea what renunciation means, it's basically a word that starts with R that means to give up something, right? So, first, <laughs> Paul's response, uh, which we find in verses 1 through 3. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Am I not, uh, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. These verses give us two arguments in Paul's defense. And the first is that he's an apostle and thus has all the authority that comes with being an apostle and that he has seen Jesus, our Lord. But Paul is not one of the, the 12 disciples that originally spent time with Jesus uh, and wasn't with Jesus throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And he clearly didn't have the credentials that someone like Peter did. Um, and on top of that, Paul started his life as a persecutor of the church. So what does Paul have going for him? Why should the Corinthians listen to him? Well, he saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. The defining characteristic of uh, apostles is that they are witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And the Corinthians could scarcely have doubted the fact that Paul had met the Lord Jesus. They would have heard Paul's conversion story over and over and over again in Paul's time with them. Jesus appeared in his resurrection glory to Paul on the road to Damascus, and we can find the account of it in Acts chapter 9. It was then that Paul became a Christian and received his call to be an apostle to the Gentiles. 
because Paul's conversion story isn't even the most convincing of proofs. It's one of the proofs, but it's not even the most convincing. That would have been the Corinthians themselves. Paul's last rhetorical question, are, you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord, points to the great irony of the Corinthian Christians questioning his apostolic authority. The very th- fact that they are Christians in the first place is proof of the genuineness of his ministry. Remember, Paul founded that church. He's the one that sowed the seeds of faith in them, that, Paul, that Apollos then watered, but that the Lord grew. And so Paul is saying, you want proof that I'm the real thing? Look at the lives that have been changed. That transformation is not something that I could have done. It could have only been done by God through me. And so you, you are the seal, the proof of my apostleship. And so what is Paul doing? Paul is pointing to the fruit of his ministry as the proof of his faithfulness to the gospel. And we do this all the time. You know, we look at the fruit of our labors to judge the labor itself. For instance, we have a couple of rocket scientists in our midst. Um, and if the rocket that they launch blows up midway through the launch, we can safely say that somebody messed up or something messed up along the way. And since it's uh, the rocket scientist's job to make sure that nothing messes up, at some point along the way, somebody was likely not completely faithful in executing their job completely. And so Paul is saying the same thing. You want to see, uh, you want to judge my ministry? Fine. Look at the fruit of my labor within, uh, among you. You guys are all Christians. Obviously, I've been faithful to the gospel. But now that he has responded to whether or not he has genuine spiritual authority, there's still the issue of the money. What is motivating Paul to refuse compensation? Is it the very idea of being paid to preach the gospel, something like, God forbid that I would uh, get paid for preaching? That's just wrong. Well, hopefully not because, you know, we get paid to be be preachers, Uh, or is it something else? And Paul is quick to build the case that it's something else. While Paul is personally unwilling to take money from the Corinthians, he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. The wrong, uh, wrong idea. It is right for them to support their ministers. But Paul wants them to go with him through his decision-making process. And so they need to be on the same page and start in the same place. And so Paul starts with what his rights are. In verses 4 to 14, Paul reminds them of his right to be compensated. Look how quickly he claims his rights in verses 4 to 6. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And so Paul begins by driving home the point that he has the same rights as all the other apostles. Isn't it interesting that he intentionally name drops Cephas? Cephas is Peter in Aramaic. Peter is clearly an apostle. His credentials are unimpeachable. Nobody would dispute that he's an apostle. And how is he treated by the Corinthian church? Well, the Corinthian church would, uh, wouldn't have thought twice about caring for Peter's needs while he was serving amongst them, and even bearing the extra burden of paying his wife's way as well. The implications, are here. Uh, the implications here are stark. It'd be like Potomac Hills pulling out the red carpet for Tim Keller, who is a well-known preacher today, and then turning around and telling Dave Silvernail 
that his, path, his ministry is wor- isn't worth a hill of beans. It's ridiculous. They're both pastors. They both preach the gospel. And if anything, we should care far more about Dave than about Tim. Because Dave has been here for 20 years to walk alongside of us. Some of us owe our faith to him. And most of us, in part, are continuing, uh, owe us, and most of us owe, in part, our continuing faithfulness to the Lord to Dave's ministry. Paul has the same rights as all the other apostles, including the right to be compensated for his spiritual work among them. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity to make fun of pastors from verse, uh, verse, from verse 6, where Paul says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And I, I get the question, what do you guys do all day, all the time? For some of you, you might be thinking there, there's like this lurking suspicion that, the, that we pastors do absolutely nothing during the week. And behold, uh, Paul has confirmed your suspicions by saying that he has the right to refrain from working for a living. Now, obviously, Paul isn't saying that pastors have a right to a life of idleness and ease, but he is saying that pastors ought to be able to devote themselves wholly to the work of the ministry. And that Churches ought to support them in such a way as to make that possible. But Paul doesn't stop there with his argument that he has a right to be paid. In verse 7, he uses the analogy of other professions. He points out other workers deserve their wages. Soldiers, vintners, and shepherds are all compensated for their labor. It'd be unthinkable to refuse to pay them, and so pastors are no different. Paul continues by citing Deuteronomy 24, uh, 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The principle of paying your workers is so universal that it even applies to animals. Uh, even applies to animals. Oxen were allowed to eat some of the grain as they did uh, the heavy work of plowing or milling. And so Paul says, does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. Like oxen who serve their masters, ministers also labor for the church to serve their masters the Lord Jesus. And the implication is that you should care, that if you would care for your oxen, you should also uh, care for your pastors who labor for your sanctification. Paul continues to pile on in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Think about the eternal value of salvation. Paul was the one through whom the Holy Spirit sowed the seeds of the Corinthians' faith. Is it too much to ask for them to materially care for his needs? I'm reminded of a, a, a story that Sarah once told me when Sarah was working as a teacher. One of the uh, parents came uh, up to her and was like, like, you know, you, aren't, you don't really do all that much. You sort of babysit my kids during the day. And Sarah's like, oh, really? I only give them the gift of literacy. <laughs> the, the, the parent was sort of saying, like, what you do isn't really worth it. But when you take a step back and consider all that Sarah did for this child to, to teach them, to teach them math, to, to teach them how to read, think about the enduring value of that gift to this kid. And she's getting paid, you know, X amount of dollars. The gift in itself is worth far more than what she's getting paid. 
And so the same is true for Paul and for ministers of the word. How much value is your salvation? Is it too much to ask to, to care for those that, that sow the seeds of that salvation among you? And if we were to skip down to verse 13, we see that it is a normal practice for those doing uh, religious work. Back in the Old Testament, when the tribes of Israel were re- receiving portions of the promised land as an inheritance, the tribe of Levi received nothing, for they were to be the priests. And the provision of the tithe, the obligatory compensation for the spiritual work that they were doing, was set up to provide for this Levite's needs. And it all comes to a close in verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That simple principle is what you're giving to. You know, I'll be the first to say that I really like dislike uh, talking about money in church. It really makes me uncomfortable. Uh, and I'll bet that many of you are either sick and tired of hearing about money or just are just as uncomfortable with it as I am. But here's what we need to understand when we talk about money in the church. It's, about, it's not about propping up an institution. It's not even for, like, you know, me or for Dave or anything like that. It's f- about providing for gospel work. It's about keeping missionaries in the field, bringing the gospel to those who have never heard it. It's about caring for your pastors who faithfully preach the gospel to you both in good times and in the hard. And it's about seeing the banner of Christ advance. And so Paul has both established his ministry, uh, his authority as an apostle, and spent a ton of time insisting about his right to be compensated. But we still haven't figured out why Paul is renouncing his rights. And it's pretty strange. I mean, think about it. Paul is paying a heavy price for renouncing his right to compensation. It's not just the lost wages either. Think about the fact that he has to spend time and energy doing the manual labor of being a tent maker. That could be time spent doing gospel work. He's also getting criticized for doing work that is supposedly beneath him, which is not only personally difficult to take, but also puts the message that he preaches at a disadvantage. So why? There's no earthly reason why Paul would do this why he would put himself and the, and the gospel at such a, such a disadvantage. Well, we speculated that it was to uh, be sure to avoid being beholden to wealthy patrons, but that's really just speculation. We're sort of reading between the lines here. So what does Paul say about why he renounces his rights? Well, let's look at verses 12 and 15 to 18. Starting midway through verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put a gospel, uh, an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And 15 to 18, but, we have made, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. So we get two reasons why Paul gave up his right to compensation. The first is more general, and the second is more personal. So first, in verse 12, 
Paul gave up his right to compensation so that he did not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. From his perspective, taking payment for his ministry would have been detrimental to, as D.A. Carson puts it, to the integrity of his and the credibility of the gospel. Taking money from the wealthy would have put the gospel message in a subordinate position to the patron's uh, agenda. And it could have uh, also aligned the gospel with the wealthy or the strong, making it undesirable or hard for the the weak or the poor to uh, receive it. And so this harkens back to chapter 8, where Paul says that the Corinthians should take care that the right to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so Paul views his taking um, compensation as a potential stumbling block. Because his brothers that have weak consciences will be tempted to sin because of the exercise of his freedom, he renounces his right, uh, his rights. Paul is far more concerned about the faith of his brothers and sisters in Christ and the increase of the gospel in their lives than one of his rights, even one so basic as being compensated for his work. Now, what about that second reason? And it comes from that difficult section about grounds for boasting, having a necessity laid upon him, and rewards. And to be honest, I had a really tough time understanding this. And uh, so I really thank the Lord for the ministry of D.A. Carson, who makes things often much more understandable. And uh, so Paul has a unique situation. For the other apostles, they're, they're in some sense volunteers, They were all called by Jesus himself and uh, made decisions to follow him and and give up everything to follow Jesus. They traveled with Jesus and had their sort of convictions cemented through the ups and downs of uh, their time with him and through the events of the cross, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. But Paul is different. Paul was a persecutor of the faith. Uh, He didn't follow Jesus during Jesus' ministry, and he was a part of the establishment that Jesus antagonized so frequently. Paul's salvation and call to ministry come in one wildly intense encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. It was a revelation that utterly transformed Paul. And so Paul didn't really sign up to do ministry, but was simply captured by the Lord, and pressed into service. And so Carson notes that for Paul, preaching the gospel and his salvation come together. They go hand in hand. And so that's why we get this talk about a necessity being laid upon him. Paul can do nothing else but proclaim the gospel. He could could no sooner walk away from preaching than walk away from his own salvation. And so this is why he pulls out the Old Testament language of woe is me, which is, means sort of like he's going rec- to feel an intense agony if he doesn't do X, Y, or Z. And so the calculus works something like this. Preaching in itself is a reward if I get to be involved in the Lord's work in your life. But for Paul, he's simply doing what he's been told. He simply, he simply has no say in whether or not he will preach. And so there isn't anything commendable in Paul's eyes or even rewarding about uh, simply preaching. And so this brings us to the last verse. What then is Paul's reward? And here Carson blew my mind. He wrote, 
quote, if Paul's preaching does not prove his wholehearted voluntary commitment to the task, since he really has no choice in the matter short of walking away from the gospel altogether, how can he show that his heart and soul are in this ministry? What element in his ministry proves that the grace of God has captured his heart and will and that his actions bring the rewards of God with them? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. And this is crazy. Paul is so determined to prove to himself, the Lord, and everybody watching that he is wholeheartedly happily and voluntarily committed to the preaching of the gospel that he gave up his right to compensation while also burdening himself greatly. It cost him time, it cost him energy, and it cost him the constant misunderstandings that come with him choosing this. And so by doing this, Paul models the freedom in Christ that he, not only, uh, that he has not only to exercise his rights, but also to lay them down. And this is radical. We live in a culture that prides itself in claiming and defending rights. Some people would rather die than give up some of their rights. And here Paul is saying the exact opposite, that he would rather die than not give up this right to work for free. Paul is so hung up on spreading the gospel that he thinks nothing of the personal cost. He will do anything and everything to see the fame of Christ increase. He will do anything to remove the gospel, uh, the obstacles to the gospel. And this is challenging for, for us, and especially your pastors. For me, am I a preacher who can do nothing else other than preach the word? and be nothing else other than a servant of the word? Has the gospel captured your attention, your hearts, and your affections that you would go to the lengths that Paul went to in order for the gospel to advance? Are we willing to surrender our rights for the sake of demonstrating a radical, gracious, generous, and forgiving love to those around us? Are we willing to sacrifice ease, comfort, reputation, and money for the sake of seeing the gospel presented to those who do not call the, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, Savior. You know, I would wager that this is the reason why the church is a punching bag in uh, mainstream culture. It's not that we're radical about uh, abortion or marriage, but because we aren't radical enough about doing whatever it would take for a full-bodied, multifaceted gospel to be displayed and advanced. Sure, we're radical about abortion and marriage, but are we radical about forgiveness? Are we radical about laying down and opening our homes for those that need it? Are we radical about forgiving those people that drive us crazy? I asked this Back in uh, chapter 8 of this, uh, of this letter, I asked us whether or not we're willing to, to lay down our rights for the sake of those that drive us crazy. Are we willing to defend fiercely our brothers and sisters in Christ who sin against us time and again? 
Are we willing to give up our rights to, to justice in the here and now for the sake of the gospel? You know, if we stop there, there'd be quite a weight on each of us to do better. But we're not about guilt-tripping or legalism here. There's only one reason why Paul can do what he did. There's only one reason why we can be a people who sacrifice deeply and go all in for Christ. And it's that it's already been done for us. Think about it. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8 say, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, or you could say, laid down his right to be honored and glorified at all times by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That death, a renunciation of the right to life itself, is at the core of what we hope in. That's the gospel. If you're new to the church and to Christianity, I want to tell you that this is what we are all about. Jesus gave up his very life for you, a sinner. We're all screw-ups here. There's not one of us that is perfect. And because we're not perfect, we don't measure up to the standard that God requires. And so while we were God's enemies, he sent his son to live the life that we ought to have lived and died the death that we ought to have died, all so that he would get you. Do you feel the wonder that captivated Paul? That God Almighty cared for little old me, with all my issues, with all of my mess, and still did whatever it took to save me from my sin. And we'll end with the great missionary Hudson Taylor. In 1853, he arrived in China to do missionary work. And as an English gentleman, he found that he, brought, uh, that he, a foreigner, brought a foreign message in a foreign way. And so Taylor willingly surrendered his rights to comfort, ease, familiarity, and reputation for the sake of the gospel. He began to eat, uh, dress, and act like a common Chinese person to the ridicule of both the British and the Chinese. But the gospel advanced as the Chinese began to see that the gospel is not a foreign message, but a message that they needed. He once said, China is not to be won, by, uh, China is not to be won for Christ by quiet, ease-loving men and women. The stamp of men and women we need is such as will put Jesus, China, and souls first and foremost in everything and at every time. Even life itself must be secondary. Over the next 47 years, Taylor would have a massive impact for the gospel, and he would pay a heavy cost. He would suffer complete and utter mental and physical breakdown in 1900. At the end of 47 years, he would cost him a wife and four children. He laid down everything for the gospel. Much of the Chinese church today can trace its roots back to Hudson Taylor and the missions agency that he founded, China Inland Mission. Everything was secondary to the gospel. You know, we read biographies of great men like Hudson Taylor 
because it reminds us that Hudson Taylor is not all that different from you and me. He's not Paul who had a unique conversion and call to the gospel ministry. He's a regular person, saved by the same gospel that we're saved by. And so we can all ask the question, what are my rights compared to the gospel? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you challenged by this passage. We've been taught from an early age to stand up for our rights, to defend ourselves. But Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, the eyes to see areas in which we can give up our rights for the sake of our, our neighbors, that we might see the gospel advance, that we might see many one for your kingdom. Lord, help us uh, have the strength to give up our rights. But most of all, Lord, we ask that you would uh, show us and increase in us the wonder of your gospel that drives us to happily, willingly, voluntarily give up our rights for you. Lord, um, would we see Jesus more and see what he has done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.